Well, hello there, friends. Thanks again for uh, tuning in. Um, we're now seven, eight weeks into this pandemic, uh, social distancing, being a digital church, and we're uh, you know we're broadcasting these digital gatherings uh, on Sunday morning through YouTube, but then also taking advantage of uh, some of the technology to have. Uh, a little bit more in-depth conversation in this format, these podcasts where we're sort of rebroadcasting our, our teaching in a different way. I do want to repeat something, though, that we said on Sunday, which is one of the beautiful things about this moment has just been watching uh, the response of our community and the ways that different people have jumped in and helped make things happen, whether that's, uh, you know, something... Uh, through a group, uh, something through a, a generosity opportunity, serving our neighbors, um, meeting different people's needs, buying groceries, all of that great stuff. But then also bringing uh, gifts, talents, perspective to the actual gathering. And so one of the things that we do miss on the podcast is some of the different people who have been able to speak into um, or, or be in front of the camera on Sunday. And again, I think just think that's been very, very cool. So if you're listening to this and, and you haven't had a chance yet to be a part of a gathering, we would love uh, for you to do that and uh, to help out in some way. We want to get as many different people uh, in front of the camera to highlight just how many folks um, are participating uh, to remind us of the community that we're a part of, uh, to be inspired by each other's gifts and talents in that way. And also as a reminder of one of our core values at Discovery, we, uh, as we like to say, are a church for the rest of us. This is not about, let's put our all-stars uh, up in front of the camera week in and week out, um, but let's put our whole community in front of the camera week in and week out so we can remember what a beautiful community we are a part of. So again, just a call to all uh, to be involved in, in some way. And who knows how long we will do this. We might run out of time, but my hope is that everybody gets a chance uh, to do this, whether or not you think you are a on-camera type person or not. All right, let's get into it. First Samuel, and we are in chapter 9 and 10 today. This is a long section, um, but a lot of really fun stuff in here. So to get started, uh, I just want to once again name that we are in the midst of this pandemic. We are in the midst of a massive disruption of life. This is an unprecedented moment. And I think that sometimes there's this, you know, especially for those of us who are fortunate enough to sit from a, a position of a little bit of privilege. Maybe we haven't been impacted you know, directly by COVID-19, but it can feel callous to complain, right? Knowing that there are people who have lost lives, that there are families that are grieving, that there are people who are sick right now all over the world. It can feel, again, a little bit disingenuous to complain about having to stay home or whatever the other disruptions might be. But the reality is, however directly we've been impacted or not, we have been impacted. This is a massive disruption, an unprecedented moment, and you have every right to feel whatever you are feeling about that. Anger, grief, frustration, so much of this stuff gets pulled to the surface when life gets turned around and it's all part of it. Now, personally, 
one of the things that's been drawn to the surface for me is is this. I like to think of myself as someone who is fairly go with the flow, someone who can kind of roll with the punches, who can adapt quickly and easily to new things. But the truth is I have my routines and my schedules. I did not necessarily grow up a disciplined person, but as I've gotten older, I found great joy in being more disciplined. And, and, and I've gotten to a place where I found some things, right? Some systems, rhythms that work for me. And I kind of like it. And so to have that disrupted has been a, a big struggle. Again, these are sort of little, relatively silly things in the grand scheme uh, of what's going on in our world. But I like having my desk at work with my whiteboard and, and books on certain shelves. And I like to have uh, you know, the space in my life to have, spend time with people and, and then uh, spend time being creative and making things. And I like to ride my bike to and from work. And I like to have a line between... K- Now I'm off the clock. Now I'm on the clock. All of this to say this moment has raised all sorts of control issues. (laughs) Anybody else struggling with control issues? Oh, man. We have all sorts of negative connotations around this idea of control, right? No one wants to be a control freak. However, I want to say this. It's not all negative. Creating order bringing structure to our world. It's part of what makes us humans. When God created us, this is what we're told about that moment. God created mankind in his own image and the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. So created in the image of God, this is what it means to be created in God's image, male and female. And then this word of blessing, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground, rule, reign, have dominion over it. It says, In some translations, part of bearing the image of God is that we're male and female. Another aspect of bearing the image of God is that we exercise some amount of control over our lives and the slice, the little slice of the world that God has placed us in. We are not robots. Okay, we get to play a part in God's big story. There is this freedom, exercise control over your part of the world. But there's also limits to that. There's boundaries around that. There's an obedience piece here, right? God gives human beings this great uh, challenge. Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, rule. But then also tells them, hey, but don't eat from this tree. All right, so there is boundaries, there's obedience, there's great freedom to exercise control. This, of course, creates the conditions for maybe the deepest mystery of our universe, this battle for control between human beings and God. Our original rebellion really was about control. We wanted ultimate control. And our bent post-Genesis 3, post-the-fall, this idea that theologians call original sin, our natural inclination is to hang on to, to grasp for control. Now, all of this brings us again into the moment that we are in, in this pandemic, but it also very much brings us into the flow of the story in 1 Samuel. So again, 1 Samuel chapter 9 is where 
we begin, and we're going to go through quite a bit of this story. Now, a reminder, 1 Samuel, the, the bigger story of 1 Samuel begins in the of the judges. If you don't know what this means, the judges were a series of leaders that God provided for his people, the Israelites. The judges started after the time of Moses and Joshua. Moses and Joshua led the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt into their land. So the judges come after them and then before the time of the kings. And we are about to get to this time of the kings here very quickly in this story. So the period of judges is in between those two things, the exodus and the kingdom. And it lasts about 400 years, just a wild, chaotic time. It's like Game of Thrones level craziness going down in this era. If you ever read through the book of Judges, it'll, you know, it'll make you blush in some parts. (laughs) Judges 21, 25 in the NRSV says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. All the people did what was right in their own Eyes. This perfectly captures what was going on in the judges. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. Now, a character, and if you've been following along, this character should be familiar to you, but there's a character named Eli. He's the second to last judge. He is the judge at the time of Samuel's birth. And as we get to know him early on in the book of 1 Samuel, we see that he's really phoned it in going through the motions, doesn't really care anymore. His sons are taking over power. They are corrupt, scandalous. They are exploiting people, uh, taking advantage of women, perverting justice. And so Samuel is born in this moment where the religious and political leadership of Israel has totally failed. Okay, the whole thing is starting to fall apart. And so Samuel, as a boy, is told by God, hey, You need to go to Eli and tell him your family is done, you're out. And then Samuel, you're going to be the next guy. Samuel will be the next judge. And as it turns out, Samuel will be the final judge. And things get off to a great start. Samuel leads the people through this incredible moment of renewal. Going back to chapter 7, all the people of Israel turn back to the Lord. 1 Samuel 7, 2. Wow, all the people of Israel turn back to the Lord. That's pretty good, right? Things, though, quickly take another negative turn. Time passes. Samuel grows in leadership. He has sons. He he appoints his sons to positions of power, and the whole sad cycle repeats. They become corrupt. They start to pervert justice. They take advantage of people. And so the elders of Israel see this going down. They realize Samuel's coming to the end of his life. This is the beginning of chapter 8. And they say, you know what, we... We can't do this anymore. Samuel, you're getting old. We do not want to be ruled by your kids. Give us a king like the other nations have. We want to be like other nations. Give us a king. Now, God had chosen Israel to be different, to model a different way of life, to model what right relationship with him is supposed to look like. Okay, they were not supposed to be like all the other nations. And so essentially Israel here says, yeah, we don't want that. We don't want that unique place. We want to be like everyone else. This set-apartness, the theological word here is holiness. They are rejecting this, this position. 
Back to the flow of the story, Samuel was deeply disappointed by this turn of events. We looked at this several weeks back, right? Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8, he says, oh, this feels personal. They're rejecting me. God says, it's not you they are rejecting, but it is me. They are rejecting God as their king. Doesn't necessarily make Samuel feel better in the moment, but that is the reality. Now, again, back to kind of the big picture perspective, asking for a king, no small thing. Not only is it a rejection of the way that God set things up, this is going to radically alter their way of life. It's going to change how they worship, how they pay taxes, how they are protected and provided for. The politics and economics and religious life of Israel is all going to change. This decision, this is a moment of unprecedented, monumental change. There is no going back. The world will never be the same. Are you with me? Now, here we are. Chapter 9 in the storyteller, as they often do, begins to hone in on very specific people, named people in particular places. We're introduced at the beginning of chapter 9 to a guy named Saul. And we're immediately given Saul's credentials. He's a Benjamite. That's the tribe that he's from, and that will become important in a moment. His father was well-respected, so good family. Saul is tall, and he is a hottie, all right? So he fits the profile. Great, uh, he's from a, a, a good tribe, family well-respected, and he looks the part. Samuel or Saul's first action in the story is to go find some donkeys that his dad had lost. So we see that he's obedient, he's faithful to his good family. This search... Uh, goes on for several verses and it leads him ultimately to Samuel. Now Saul thinks he's going to Samuel to find out where the donkeys have gone. Saul's uh, servant <clears throat> said, hey, I know a guy who, who uh, is smart and he knows some stuff. Let's go talk to him. Maybe he can help us find the donkeys. So Saul meets Samuel thinking, okay, this guy can help me find these lost donkeys. But we know as we read through the story that God has been orchestrating this moment. 1 Samuel 9, verse 15. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him ruler, remember that word, ruler over my people Israel. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked on my people, for their cry has reached me. When Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, Hey, there's the guy. This is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern. Again, pay attention to the language here. He will govern my people. So God has orchestrated this moment. He's clearly behind Saul becoming the first king but the language is interesting he will rule over my people he will govern my people something very similar happens later on in chapter 10 samuel anoints saul and in first samuel 10 1 we read has not the lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance no one seems to want to come out and say it saul is going to be the king and this ambivalence captures the essence of Saul's story in so many ways. Okay, it looks so good, right? He's good looking, he's tall from a, a tribe that is small but strategic. Going back to the time of Judges, there was a civil war in Israel and Benjamin was in the heart of that. So choosing a Benjamite to be the first king is gonna help align the people around this idea of kingship. He comes from a well-respected family. God chooses him. That's no small fact. <laughs> 
In 1 Samuel 10.9, we're told that God changes Saul's heart. The very next verse, 10.10, God's spirit comes on Saul. He begins to prophesy. So many things look good. But then there's this hesitancy to come out and name him as king. Saul himself questions this, 1 Samuel 9.21. Later on in the story, Saul's uncle's like, hey, what have you been doing hanging around with that Samuel guy? And Saul didn't say anything about the king thing. He says, oh, just helping me find the lost donkeys. That's 1 Samuel 10, 14, 15, and 16. And then here's, here's the kicker, the climax of today's story. Samuel is ready to introduce Saul to the people as their king, and no one can find Saul. And in fact, it's God who has to say, hey, he's hiding in the luggage. Right? The whole thing kind of embarrassing. Now, let's give Saul a little bit of grace here, right? This whole thing started when he was asking for donkeys. So to go from looking for donkeys to, hey, you're going to be the king, that's a lot to process. <laughs> a lot of change in a short amount of time. We can resonate with that. But again, the whole process, a mixed bag, some good trends, some very troubling trends as well, all of which foreshadows the incredibly tragic story of Saul. And we're going to dig into that a lot more in the coming weeks. But to close our time today, I want us to hone in on a little moment right in the middle of this story that brings us very much back to this issue of control. So remember, Samuel anoints Saul, says you're going to be the ruler. The Spirit of God will come on you. You are going to prophesy. And these are the things that happens to Saul right after this, right? So Samuel gives him this great promise. This leads to a a tremendous amount of freedom for Saul. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hands find to do for God is with you. 1 Samuel 10, 7. What an incredibly affirming statement. Do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Freedom. But then, the very next verse, Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. So freedom. Do whatever your hand finds to do, but boundaries. Wait seven days for further instructions. Rule. Reign, have dominion over creation, but don't eat this fruit. This tension reflected even in the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the life that he invites us into is a life of freedom. Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So there's this freedom to exercise control, but then there's also obedience, submission, John 15, 9 and 10, these are the words of Jesus. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Freedom and obedience. How do we live in the tension between our ability to exercise control and then the truth that God is ultimately in control of our universe. Freedom and obedience. How do we live in the tension? Well, we have a word for this, and it's the word faith. Too often, pastors like me have made faith about knowledge, about intellectual agreement with you know a doctrinal truth. If we just uh, 
sort of make a, a, an agreement with that, then we have faith. But faith is, has an intellectual component, but it is not about intellectual agreement because faith is relational. It describes a relationship of trust. Now, it's hard to live by faith because we have these issues with control, right? Our natural bent is to want to be in control. Some of us use our freedom, okay? One side of this tension, we use our freedom to assert our control and we say things like, I'm just going to do me. Everyone else can deal with it. The other side of that, we use our obedience as a way to manipulate God into giving us what we want. Look at how good I am. Look at how obedient I am. Things should work out the way I want them to work out. Faith enjoys the freedom we've been granted to create, to explore, to order, right? To, to do whatever we can find to do with our hands for God is with us, but it also obeys and accepts the boundaries around that freedom. Wait seven days for further instructions. The mystics and the saints of church history called this active indifference. You throw yourself wholeheartedly into your roles and tasks, mothering, studying, teaching, researching, bagging groceries, whatever it might be, but then you hold all of that open-handedly. We surrender the outcomes. We walk by faith. This is a tension that Saul will never really be able to reconcile. Again, as we move through his story, we're going to see this over and over again. Even today, we, we get glimpses of this. Chosen by God, but never really able to submit to God's plan for his life, given this great role to play, yet hiding in the baggage. I think for a lot of us right now, this is where we are. Unexpected, unprecedented change. We were just out looking for some donkeys. We didn't ask for this. None of us asked to be thrust into the middle of a global pandemic and yet it is in the soil of this moment that we have an amazing opportunity invitation to grow in faith to move forward in freedom and obedience now last week we were challenged to contend in prayer to contend for renewal in our world in our church in our lives This is a great example of what we mean by walking by faith because there's great freedom in what contending can look like, and yet there's also this obedience peace. If my people, God says, who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Prayer is foundational to relationship with God because in and of itself it is an act of faith. We do our part. We contend. We pray our guts out, but then there's freedom in the truth that it's not on us. We are not the saviors and sustainers of the world. So we pray, but then we also trust God to move. We're fully committed to the action of the moments, but open-handed with the results. That's faith. So two real simple questions, simple and yet very complex questions. Is there something that God has asked you to do that you need to obey? Is there a step of obedience that you have known about for a while, you've been avoiding it? Maybe there's something that's just occurred to you in this time that we've spent here together. Is there something God has asked you to do that you need to obey? 
is the challenge, the invitation, the opportunity this morning to step into obedience. And then the other side of that, where do you need to embrace the freedom that God has granted us? Have you been operating out of a sense of obligation, a sense of duty? These are the things I have to do so that people will like me, God will be pleased with me. Do you need to embrace the freedom that God has granted us? Let me pray. Father, we confess that so often we struggle to live in the tension, to live faithful lives, to walk by faith. And so we either abuse the freedom that you've given us or we seek to manipulate you through our obedience. Um, we struggle with the boundaries and we uh, run away with our freedom, God. But the invitation to be in relationship with you and right relationship with you is to live in between those two places, enjoying the freedom that you have given us and yet also accepting the limits, the boundaries that you have put upon that. And so, God, in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of um, so many questions about what the future holds, may we be able to live by faith. This is an opportunity for us to actually do this to trust who you are, what you have done through Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, and to wholeheartedly give ourselves over to whatever task is before us, but then also to do that open-handedly, trusting that you are in control. So Father, we relinquish that desire we repent of that desire to want to control everything around us and we step into faith, into freedom and obedience. Father, thank you for who you are and what you have done. Thank you for Jesus and the good gift of his life, his resurrection that overcomes death, sin, dysfunction, distance between us so that we can be in relationship with you. God, we are grateful for all of this. We pray this in Jesus' name this morning. Amen.